0: Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Esalen's artist in residence for spring 2021, Darnell Walker. Darnell is a writer and creator of children's media, as well as a powerful documentary filmmaker. His efforts include 2015's Seeking Asylum, which explored black Americans' desires to escape American tyranny and widespread police violence for safer lands. He's made work that investigates mental health, sexual violence, education, and revolution. Together we explored his body of work, modes of creativity, and the kind of change he hopes to affect in the world. But before we get into our conversation, are you looking for support in navigating the unique challenges that middle age brings when it comes to navigating relationships, career, finances, and health? On June 5th, Modern Elder Academy begins an eight-week online transitions course on navigating profound life changes in middle age and beyond. You'll be part of a small Esalen-only cohort, learning from home, doing one-on-one calls with other group members and tapping into Modern Elder Academy's pool of thought leaders. Learn more at modernelderacademy.com and use the coupon code Esalen when you enroll to save 10%. Now here's my conversation with Darnell Walker. So Darnell, you're Esalen's artist in residence Mm -hmm. in the spring of 2021. And you're kind of what I'd call a renaissance man.
1: Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I say I'll that, take it. I, I say that
0: because you you know, you create a lot of disparate forms of, of art and, mm-hmm. and your creativity is is kind of varied. And what I wanna do over the course of the, the interview is try to to touch upon a lot of them and okay. maybe draw some strands and parallels between the, the work that you're doing and kind of try to figure out where it comes from. Okay. Sounds good so right now you're creating children's media that was the first thing that I found out about you so maybe yeah. we, we can begin there
1: that's a good place to start uh, yeah I'm uh, I'm a writer for children's television uh, children's media I do podcasts as well um, working on a, a short animated film and I've written a few children's books uh, I wrote the children's book maybe I have two now but the first one I guess about seven years ago that kind of led me in this direction I was like oh maybe we should look more into children especially with you know i I believe that representation matters and having things out there for kids like the first book i wrote was about um, a kid who was going to lose his sight eventually um and so talking about disabilities in children and all of that was important and then that turned into a script one day many years later four years later and that turned into a fellowship and led me into children's television well
0: tell me about why did you choose to focus on uh, like a children a child who would lose his sight
1: Originally, it was because I had a fear of losing my sight. And not that it, it was ever a threat or anything that I thought would happen. It was just, for some reason, I always had this thought, like, if I went blind, I don't think I'd be able to handle that. And then I went to an exhibit um, called Dialogue in the Dark when I was in Atlanta once. And um, it was basically like they take you into this completely pitch black, um, these spaces, four spaces. One's a sh- busy street corner, one's a restaurant, one's a bedroom, and one is a grocery store. And they give you a, a, a guy who's actually blind and you all get a cane and you have to figure out how to navigate these spaces. And so I did that, and when I came out, I was like, you know, huh, I made it. You know, like it, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I think I'd be fine. Um, I don't want to lose my sight, but I think I'd be fine if it ever happened. And then this book just came to me from from that experience. I was like, huh, I want to have a a kid who, and I I travel a lot. And so I created this book about this kid who wants to be a pilot and see all the beautiful things in the world. And he finds out he's going to lose his sight and it may not happen. Um, But his mom takes him on a trip around the world to see all those things. Yeah. So I combined like all of these things that I had going, going through my head at the time. And it just came out as this book. Do you have children? I have one. I have a 16 year old. Okay, so yeah. you
0: have experience with the children's media platform.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, watching the things he watched growing up and finding shows that I enjoyed that I wanted to give to him. And, uh, but it's much different. Like, the shows I watched as a kid could never be re- reproduced uh, now. You know, um, some of the Tom and Jerry and, and Roadrunner and things like that, we could never do now for children. Um, but being able to share those and being able to see what he was watching and what he was into and his friends um, was great. And so coming into where I am now into a children's space with podcasts and television, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I watch that. I've seen that. Yeah, I, I think I could do a couple episodes of that. We'll see. Talk to me a little bit
0: about the work that you do with podcasts and television, if you will.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so with podcast, I work for uh, I write for um A team called Tinkercast, which is great. Um, It's one of the number one, it's the number one children's, um, they produce the number one children's podcast called Wow in the World. Um, I write for their show Two What's in the Wild, which is a kid's game show. It's a scientific based game show that's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, We basically set up kids to come on and figure out which of the three scientific quote unquote facts uh, is the true fact and then we you know and it's a it's a great show for kids who uh two and up or who knows you know like very very young i enjoy it as an adult like i before uh, getting the uh, opportunity to write i would listen to all the episodes and i'm like huh and me and my friends would have fun trying to figure out which which one was the true wow so i do that uh, with shows i i'm part of the blues clues writing team blues clues and you comes on nickelodeon um through the company uh, nine story that i work for Written for a few other shows, one called Karma, uh, Karma's World. It's coming to Netflix pretty soon. And so it's great. And always looking for more opportunities and trying to get that stuff out there. I came through, like I said, I came through the Sesame Street writing room. Um, and there we were basically creating our own original content. So also trying to do that at the same time.
0: Oh, actually, bring me back to the, the Sesame Street. I think when, yeah. we, when we spoke before, you told me about you had received a fellowship from Sesame
1: Absolutely. Street. Absolutely, yeah. So. Yeah, it was crazy. I was living in South Africa at the time. And, um, you know, as a writer, as a television writer, you you apply to fellowships like every year, every everyone has one. And it's like, okay, and you it becomes exhausting. And so a friend says, hey, you should apply to the Sesame Street one. Maybe this is for you. And I'm thinking probably. I don't know. I've never thought about children's stuff, but it can't hurt to apply. All they can do, they can only say no. And so i did i applied and expected to know got an interview the interview was i mean i thought it was awful <laughs> you know like i was i was uh, traveling at the time i was in portugal it was a national holiday in portugal the wi-fi was down where i was staying the only the restaurants were closed i found a burger joint that had aretha franklin playing like loud <laughs> and i had to stand outside with the wind blowing. And doing this interview, um, and they called me a week later, and I was accepted into the program. Moved, moved back to the States for that. It was just, like it was like day one, one of those things where you get in there and you realize that this is where you should have been all along. And wow. um, I was like, huh, I should have been in kids'
0: media years ago. That is so interesting with the, uh, the other information that I know about your work because I've mm-hmm. watched these um, documentaries that you've created, and they're not kids' material at all. Not at all. At all. So... Let's talk a little bit about the, your documentary work and, mm-hmm. and kind of weave back to the to the oh, children's sure. work as well. So, for sure, yeah. yeah. Maybe maybe you could start off with the first one that you created.
1: Okay, yeah. So the first one was um, um, seeking asylum um, from 2015. I was uh, it was April. I remember um, Freddie Gray had just been killed in Baltimore. And I had a trip planned to Europe already. Like, it wasn't a thing that I planned out to make a film. It was like, I'm going to Europe and going to this festival in Amsterdam to just party, dance, and tour around. What was the festival? It was called King's Day. Uh, so it was the King's birthday, April 27th every year. That was the plan. And and I was landing first, though, in Oslo in Norway. And so I'm telling a friend about the trip. I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to Norway. First, then I'm going to London and then to Amsterdam. And he's like, You're to Oslo? What are you going to seek asylum over there after what just happened to Freddie Gray? And I'm like, Huh, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> but then I said, You know, Be- because you found the situation in the, the United U.S. States untenable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The U.S. At the, I mean, at, at that time, this is 2015, but still today, like it was everything is repeating itself. Mm-hmm. Um, everything's still the same things are still happening. But it hadn't been a thought before that. Like, and when he said it, I'm like, why well, I did not think of that. Um but so I grabbed my camera and I just went through Europe and whenever any anytime anyone wanted to talk, I just had the camera's like, oh, can I can I talk to you on camera? Not to make a film, but just to have footage to bring back to the States and say, This is how the world sees what's happening over here. In terms um, of uh, police in terms violence. of like police, yeah, violence against uh, black folks in the US um by police. Because I know like we weren't getting that though that message here. Like no one knew what the world was thinking. You know, like there was no news unless you had friends somewhere and I had traveled enough to know that The world wasn't silent while we were being treated this way. And so that's what I wanted to do and Because um, the year before not even the full year But the year before was Mike Brown and Ferguson and I was there in the streets for that And so I was there at least filming and putting things on YouTube for people back home to watch because the news wasn't telling the full truth and so I shoot all this footage and I get back from Europe and a friend says, wow, you have like a hundred hours of footage. You should maybe put something together, make a film. I'm like, huh, maybe. I don't know much about editing. Yeah, I'll see. And then, so he, I paid him like a hundred bucks to teach me for like one day of editing. I was like, could you edit? He's like, I'll charge a hundred dollars a day. I was like, I have a hundred bucks. I'm going to give you one day. (laughs) And so I just sat there and watched him like cut and add and cut and add. And so then the rest of the time I did it myself, learned how to put music to it, and then I just put it out there. And someone says, submit it to festivals, so I did. And I remember someone said, oh, you're a documentary filmmaker. I was like, oh, I guess so, maybe. And it started getting accepted to festivals around the world, that's how I ended up in South Africa. And it became a thing, like I'm actually still touring with it, uh, it's what, six years later, people are still talking about it. And it's, it's great, uh, mostly because of the content of course, and it's still very relevant. Did you end up finding asylum in a sense? I uh, I did not uh, officially no because um, when I got to Europe, it was so strange. Um, there was a protest in Oslo. I think at the time there was an Ethiopian genocide, and so that was the protest that was happening in Oslo. And uh, talking to folks in Oslo, they were like, "Yeah, no, we don't." And so the film, you know, I asked, I asked one guy, I'm like. You know, if black people want—and he's black guys—like if black people wanted to come here because we didn't feel safe in the U.S., would you welcome us with open arms? He's like, no. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. He was the only one that thought that. He was the only one that had that opinion. To be fair, like everyone else was like, absolutely. Oslo welcomes you. Oslo is a beautiful place. I've had an amazing experience here. I got to London. London was also protesting. Uh, the death of Freddie Gray at the time. Um, I didn't know that that protest was even happening. I was walking to get food and ran into uh, an amazing young woman. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm down here. Are you here for the protest? I'm like, oh, what protest? She's like, the Freddie Gray protest is about to happen in about 10 minutes. And so I'm standing there like, oh. And so I had my camera ready, you know, and that was happening there. And London's had a history also of racism and and things like that. So, And I knew that London wasn't where I wanted to be or the UK isn't where I wanted to be. Amsterdam was was high on my on my list, but I got to Amsterdam and we were in McDonald's getting food. And uh, the police stormed it. Like, I don't know what happened. Like, I mean, it happened in a blink of an eye. Everything was calm. And then you see the manager of the McDonald's pick up a kid, a black kid, and throw him outside. And the police, maybe 20 of them, swarm him. And then they open up and the kid's gone and no one knows where he went and i'm like what's going on and the black one of the black kids says oh this happens all the time they'll release him in the morning it'll be fine and i'm like what and then i start talking i make i'm making friends there and we're talking about um the netherlands you know history of racism and and i ended up fighting um for a few years uh, and still because they have a around christmas time they have like Piet, uh, black pete which is like a very racist Caricature, like blackface, everyone puts blackface on, and it's crazy. And I'm like, okay, Amsterdam might not be the place either. Um, and eventually I ended up in South Africa because of this film. And I was like, this is where I need to stay. And I yeah. stayed in South Africa for a few years.
0: When you told me that you had ended up in South Africa, that of course was kind of surprising to me because I don't know that much about South Africa, mm-hmm. but I do know about the history of apartheid there. So can you yes. tell me about kind of the climate racially in, in South Africa when you landed?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and um, South Africa, is a, <laughs> it's a strange, complex country. Um, I got there, I was there for maybe 15 minutes and I was like, I have to live here. I didn't know what it was. The vibe, it was the vibe. I didn't know much about the country. It wasn't on my immediate list of places to travel. Um, I knew about apartheid, you know, like I would seen all the documentaries, read all the books, knew it well. Um, and I get there and I'm like, this place is beautiful. It's amazing. I feel great. I feel welcomed here. And so I stayed, but being there, I landed at the time when they were fight they had the fees must fall movement going on um where black students were protesting the fees of university because it's like we were oppressed until literally 20 years ago and we have to pay the same amount as the white students pay you know like that whole thing um apart like being there i got there 26 so 20 uh 22 years after apartheid or so uh, officially ended anyway i'll say it kind of was, it felt like the opportunity to see what America was like coming out of uh, Jim Crow, you know, except with technology. It's like, oh, if if we had Instagram, Facebook and all this in the 60s, 70s, this is what this would have felt like.
0: Did you note a climate of like racially charged police
1: violence in South Africa? I, I did not. And. It was it was absolutely one of the questions I asked um, when I got to I was so I was in Johannesburg and the climate in Johannesburg is a lot different than Cape Town, so Johannesburg now is kind of in this place where so many movements are taking place, a lot of progress is being made, conversations are happening, change is happening. These and and the conversations are amazing. Like you meet amazing people who are who are doing a lot of the work on the ground to make positive change in the country. Cape Town feels like no one, it's like, I know people there are fighting, I have amazing friends, but it also feels like racism will be here for a long time. And so anytime I go to Cape Town, I have a hard time. Um, I, didn't ex- I didn't experience any police or witness any police violence, harassment, yes. Um, but I don't think I even seen a white police officer in South Africa. And so it, it didn't even, like the feeling was different. Like when I'm in the US, I, you know, even in Amsterdam, I remember being in Amsterdam, walking down the street, and a cop taps me on the shoulder, and I turn around. and He's like, "Oh, watch out! The train's coming!" And I, I move out of the way, and then I realize, like, five minutes later, I was like, "Huh? I wasn't even nervous when I turned around and saw that it was a police officer." But I'm in the U.S. and I'm riding down the highway, and a cop can pull up behind me, and instantly I'm like, "Oh, do I have my license on me? Am I?" I might die you know like it's it's an instant
0: feeling and you were a victim of police violence i read on um, mm-hmm. just doing some internet research on you when you were younger right
1: when i was a kid um, when i was a kid the first time i was stopped by a cop i was oh man i don't even know maybe like somewhere between like eight and ten and playing tag with my cousin in the park and they just stopped me and held me for her. 30 minutes, an hour, just asking me questions. Like, where do you live? Who do you stay with? Why are you running from us? I'm like, I'm not running. I'm playing tag with my cousin who's right there. And they're like, no, you're running. And it was this whole thing. So, and then every experience I had with a cop after that, it was like, I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia. So, which no one knew about until 2017 when, you know, the Tiki Torches and the Klan and all that. But I had this conversation yesterday. Charlottesville is one of those places. Like, so when 2017 happened, You were able to see like two Charlottesville's. It was like the one Charlottesville where people were hashtagging, not my this is not my Charlottesville, this doesn't happen. And the black people in Charlottesville were saying, No, this is exactly what Charlottesville is. And we're just glad that you all get to see it now. So people like, Were you fighting? Were you were you part of that? It was like, and my family's like, no, because this is always what happens this is what we always see Mm. and um and so every experience i would ride my bike through the university i would get stopped by police so they can check the serial number on on my bike this always happened i got to school i went to school um undergrad in daytona beach and which is probably the most racist place i've ever been in my life but my school was amazing but i had an incident where i was me and a friend um, I was held on the ground with a gun to my head and my friend had a gun on her head by another cop and they're telling us like, oh, we think your car is stolen. Someone said it was stolen. And we're like, who? And they're like, someone around the corner said it was stolen. And we're like, what? And so we're scared and then he looks at her registration and he's like, sorry about that. You guys have a good day. And so like these, kept, these things kept happening. I don't think, I think I may have had one great, situation with the cop where i was driving i got pulled over and my license was in the trunk and my tag was expired and he's like don't worry about it it's fine. <laughs> and you know I'm, I'm sitting there like oh i thought that was gonna go completely different but every every situation has been the same so when it was time to go for me it was time to go but i just keep sitting so when i got to south africa and i got to amsterdam and london and any other country where they are where you know i've had run in not run-ins with the police but i've and with encounters with police it's been I, I didn't fear for my life I, I didn't have any feelings whatsoever it was like oh this is a person but i come back to the states and it's like oh this could be the last day that i'm here it's really yeah. it's really powerful to hear your story
0: and to also consider the fact that you made this film in was it 2015 or 16 15 mm-hmm. and the situation hasn't gotten better it's gotten yeah. worse and and yeah. likely i, I mean what does that feel like for you to have created this powerful piece of media and brought awareness to to the subject and then to see the the same situation kind of replaying itself over and over?
1: Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. I've had the conversation with friends, family about, you know, always say like you know, people you hear people say like history repeats itself and I'm like yes, but also, it's not really history if it never changed. Like, it's always been the present. It's always been currently happening. And so when I created it, I knew that it wasn't going to – I mean, you hope you hope that it's going to change something. But it's like it probably won't change anything. But I also want people to see it and say, oh, I can leave this place and go elsewhere. Like, every question, you know, every Q&A that I've had at film festivals for this, it's always – you know, I always get the question like um, – or the statement, it's like, well, everywhere is racist. There's racism everywhere. And I'm like, yes, racism does exist everywhere, but there are places you can go where you, you, you can feel safe. You can feel like you, if I get stopped by a cop, I don't fear that I'm going to lose my life. If like Whatever that racism is, I don't fear. Like It's not going to affect how I live. It's not, some. I don't have to deal with it every day. Here, it's like, it's just there. And, and so, it's when, so now I look at it and I'm like, oh, if, I'm glad we're having this conversation. I'm glad this film has created this conversation. I wish it could have done more than create conversation. And maybe one day it will, but, you know, everyone can't go. But if you have the opportunity to go, go somewhere where you feel safe for your kids. And then it's like, it's the whole thing of, well, if I, like in the film, my friend, um, she asked, she's like, well, you know, if we leave, are we giving up? And I'm like, you know, sometimes you gotta. Sometimes you just have to say, you know what, I'm not fighting for this anymore. I'm out, you know, like she's like, you know, our ancestors, they fought. And I was like, well, they didn't have a choice. They didn't have the choice to leave. We can go. And if it means, you know, our kids are safer, we're in, in better uh, communities, our mental health is so much better, then why, why aren't we leaving? And that's what I wanted to start that conversation.
0: Talk to me about mental health because you're, I believe, the next film that you made was Mm -hmm. Outside the House. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I I made, so each of my films actually kind of um, was a spinoff, sort of, of the film before that. So with uh, with, uh, Seeking Asylum, you know, there were so many things in the film about how racism affects our mental health and how, you know, there hasn't been a time in the U of black people being in the U.S. that we haven't been without at least stress and anxiety. And so I'm like, huh, you know, that's something we don't talk about. Let's talk about that. And so one day I put on Facebook and I said, if you, if you have gone to a therapist or um, sought mental health assistance, what made you go? And I had a few friends, like it was silent for like an hour, no one wanted to say anything. And then finally someone said, I thought I was gonna kill myself. I think that was the first message. It was like, I thought I was going to kill myself one night and I needed someone to talk to. From there, it was like the floodgate just opened. Everyone was like, oh, I thought I was alone. Oh, my gosh. And you would see someone post something that's like completely vulnerable and honest. And then someone would comment under that like, I I never knew someone else felt the same way that I felt about this. Wow. And I, I see people like reaching out saying, oh, who's your therapist? I, I would love to talk to them. Maybe you can refer someone, you know. And that I've never seen this among black people. It was like, we don't talk about mental health, and I wanted to talk about it. I was like, well, this is what we need to talk about. So if any of you on this on this post want to have a conversation, I will fly to where you are, or you can come to me, or we can get on Skype, but I want to talk to you. And people just reached out and said, I would love to talk to you. I've never shared this story with anyone, but I'll talk to you. And I and it's crazy. Like I have people in the film who were saying, who are telling these stories, and they're like, you know, wow! I didn't think I was going to even talk about this, but it's just coming out. I haven't even told my mom. I was almost Gosh, like a, what if she sees this?
0: A, <laughs> like, kind of a therapy itself yeah. to to
1: participate in the, in the to just get it out with you, absolutely. And and it's crazy. Like I, I'm not a therapist. Didn't go to school for it. <laughs> and so I would always tell them, like, listen, I'm not I'm not a therapist. <laughs> but I had therapists calling, writing me saying. Listen. If any of the people who are participating want to talk, I'm here to help. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, we I built up like this amazing network of therapists that I can now re- refer people to um, in organizations. And what's strange about it is that so when I when I finished the film, I, I was living in South Africa at the time, and it became so heavy. It was already six months past like the the date that I promised I would have it complete, but I'd done so many interviews and. It was just, I just couldn't finish it. I just could not. And um, I got food poisoned. And I'm sitting there, and I was like, I can't leave the house. I should, I guess I should just finish this film. And so I finished the film. Um, I remember at night, and I said, I'm going to put it up for 12 hours on, on um, Vimeo and YouTube and on this webpage, And then just send out the link. Whoever watches it in 12 hours will see it. And I'll take it down, submit it to festivals, and I put it up. I woke up the next morning. I mean, my box, my inbox was like flooded with messages. Like, please don't take this down. Like, you literally saved my life. Like, I didn't know I was I was going to what I was going to do last night. So many messages, and I was like, I got to leave it up. And um, from there, I started getting calls from from psychology departments at universities, um, and I. Been to university to, to talk to psychologists about to teach them how to talk to Black people about therapy, and it's like you I, and I have to tell them every time like I'm not an expert. They're like, but you are. What do you say? Because you've talked to these people. <laughs> I'm like, you know, it starts with trust. Like it's yeah. it's all about because so many times what happens is you know like you you graduate and people who who aren't in the community, just non Black people, and even some some Black therapists too. They come into communities and they say, "This is what we're offering. This is what you need from us." And it's like, "No, you didn't ask us what we needed. You know, we could have told you we didn't need, we didn't need this." It's like the story I heard from a a great friend of mine. Like, there's a community in maybe Hawaii where it's like a, a poorer community, and some folks went up there and they took. They were like, "Oh, they need a car." Uh, If they had a car, they can get around. So they bought them a car and they came back a year later and like trees had grown around it and bushes and all this stuff. They're like, What? You didn't use the car? They're like, Yeah, we didn't tell you we needed the car. You know, we needed whatever, you know? And it's like, No, ask us what we need, Mm -hmm. build the trust. Don't come in and just try to start something. It takes a while. You got to have patience. Uh, We already don't trust the, the healthcare system much um, because of the history that we've gone through with the healthcare system. And it's like, so you have to build that trust up and then we'll decide if we're going to talk to you.
0: And how do you create trust with the people that you interview? How is it that you get get people to open up to you in order to create these documentaries that change people's lives? You know, I have no idea.
1: I like I literally I think I'm just a lot of the people have um, followed me on social media. They know someone I know. You know, so, yeah, and they just reach out and say, you know, I, I trust, like, I, don't, I carry my way, myself in such a way, like, I don't judge and um, I don't have anything out there where people would see it and say, oh, I don't think I trust him with this. You know, so many people who say, you know, I'm here to talk, if you want to talk about your mental health, I'm here for you, but then they'll have a post about their crazy cousin so-and-so, and it's like, yeah, but... You can't do that, you know. And it's not that I do it intentionally; it's just how I live. And I think that yeah. people see it, and um, it just... and it, it. I've never really questioned it. I just accept it and say, "Yeah, I would love to talk to you if you want to come and talk." And they just come in and and, and just start sharing. And I'm like, "I'm glad you did that."
0: A, a thread that I see in, in going through your work is this desire for people to kind of open up and unload in, in an honest way. I mean, specifically. Black people. Mm-hmm. Do you have a belief that that Black people's stories are largely untold in the in the United States? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think, um, yeah, absolutely. I you know, I remember a few years ago watching, um, I think it was the Academy Awards or it was an award ceremony, and uh, Viola Davis, you know, who's amazing, and she's doing an uh, acceptance speech, and she's like. You know, there are stories in those graveyards out there, you know. There's so many stories that weren't told. And I'm like, yes, there's so many. Because we didn't, one, we didn't know how to share them. We didn't know where to share them. We didn't know how to be vulnerable. We didn't want to put our, the weight of whatever these this, this stuff was on someone else. We didn't want to be a burden. Um, Like, for many, many reasons, they weren't shared, you know. Like, even trying to talk to my parents or my aunts and uncles, my grandmother, it was tough. You know, it's like uh, I remember finding wedding, a marriage certificate of my great-grandparents, and I told my grandma, I was like, oh, you know, I really want to research the family. And she's like, don't go looking into anything until I die. And I'm like, well, what's the story there? You know, like there are stories, but there's shame around some things, and there's so much. It's it's like, you know, you why we can't really get – great stories of black musicians. It's like, you know, someone wants to tell the story or or authors or anything, and then the family's like, no, we don't want to tell that story. You know, I've been trying to tell a story about James Baldwin for years, uh, me and a friend, and we can't find a producer because, we can't find a black producer because they're like, oh, I don't know if we should tell that story. I guess we got to keep <laughs> looking for a producer because I'm going to tell this story. And so it's so many stories out there, and they're not being told for whatever reason, and that's what I'm trying to do. Like, I actually just started a, an obituary project where, because I think that so many people are dying who have, you know, who are like libraries. Like, they are literally libraries of these, these people. Are. And uh, we don't get those stories from them. And so it's like, you get like a two sentence obituary and it's like, oh, they had these kids and they died and this is the funeral. And it's like, but what happened? You know, you read, like, New York Times obituaries, and it's like, this person lived. You know, and I'm like, we have this. Yeah. These people, I've sat with some of these people, and I've heard the most amazing stories. Like, my grandfather, who had a story, like, every day, and I'm like, these stories exist. Why aren't we telling them? Like, when they die, they should exist somewhere. And so, I'm just trying to do that, too. So, it's like, yeah. So, what, what form would that project take? That's going, it's uh, it's going to be written. Um, i actually just started while I was here at Esalen. Um, I thought about it for, for maybe a year and a half, two years, and um, I was sitting in the yurt, and I'm like, you know what, now's the perfect time, like it just came to me. And I'm like, yeah, so I went on again to social media and to some people I knew, I was like, hey, if anyone died in your family, whenever, and you felt like the obituary wasn't what it should have been and you know that they have stories, reach out to me I want to tell them. I sent them a questionnaire to fill out, and so I'm writing these things out and sending it to them saying, here, here's the story of your mother or your uncle. And they're like, oh my God, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, because they're like, yeah, they, they died and we have nothing. I'm like, yeah, but you have, you have the stories and they told you and between the five of you, you, know, you could put pieces of their life together, but maybe it should exist somewhere else. And so writing it out, trying to figure out what to do with it after that, mm-hmm. but yeah, so far it's just a, a thought. So it's all coming again.
0: Well, you also have an interest in death from mm-hmm. a different perspective, and I wanted mm-hmm. you to to talk a little bit about this uh, goal you have of becoming a death doula.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I, I, it's such a personal thing. Um, I think death is such a. It's like the one thing we own. The one thing we that's going to happen. Is, it, you know, we're all headed that way, and I. I I would rather people not be alone when it happens. I don't want people to be afraid of it, and I also think that there's so even when you're dying, there's still life that's happening, and so I, you know, I want to be there for those who have no one who who are afraid or who want to tell those stories um, and somehow get those stories out. Uh, it's been something like I didn't know what a death doula was until just a couple of years ago, but what a death doula does is something I've been thinking about for years. So like at least since twenty fourteen. And it it just came you know, it came to me and tell me a little bit more about it because it's not something that everybody would do.
0: I mean myself when I think about becoming a death doula, it's just like, no, that's mm-hmm. and I'm into some pretty intense stuff, but that's, that's way too intense yeah. for me. Yeah. What is it what is it about you that you feel you can you can hold that and, and that mm-hmm. that kind of environment can be um, something that you can exist in.
1: Yeah, and um, you know, I, I honestly, I don't know. I, it's just I've been around people who are dying. Um, I remember I had a cousin um, in '94 who died uh, from age-related complications uh, in the '90s when people were still like very ignorant to what it was. They didn't want to come around. You know, the most of the family didn't want to come around. And it was really me and my my he stay, my grandmother was like, you can come and stay with me. And you know, you're my nephew, whatever. So he comes and he stays with her. My mom's like, yeah, you can go up there. My mother had already taken care of one cousin who died. And so I'm up there and it's it wasn't a, you know, you're dying thing. It was like, oh, tell me about, you know, how was Kentucky and how was this? And looking back, I think that was my first, the first instance I had with someone who was act like he came home to die. He knew it was a matter of weeks maybe, and he's like, I wanna come back to Virginia. That's the first time I, you know, looking back, I remember being around it. And it was never a thing of, oh, you know, this weight, this heaviness. It was always, I wanna make sure that your last couple of weeks, you feel loved in this thing. Um, And then, you know, my grandfather, who died a few years ago, being there with him in the end and just having those conversations like, okay, so when, when when you die, Um, Who do you want to do the eulogy? And you're having these conversations. And no one else, everyone else is coming in like, you know, they give it the look, the head, the, you know, turn the head to the side. And sometimes people don't look at you or they treat you like the dying person for, I think think these people saw me as, oh, yeah. And so it was just, we would literally just sit in there and laugh and have conversations up until the end, you know. And I'm like, huh. So I don't know what that is, um, what that is, but... I think, like holding space, it's all about holding space in a very non-judgmental way. And a lot of the things that I've experienced in life um, have led me to do that. In the end, for people, it seems too that you're bringing your creative spirit to places that Mm
0: -hmm. a lot of people can't bring creativity to.
1: Yeah, like it's hard to it's you know it's hard to see it. Like I ended up writing my grand my my granddad was like oh, I want you to do the eulogy you know we're the only two smart people in this family I'm like yeah you yeah, that's probably true <laughs> you know and uh, um and so so it's it was great it was great to be able to do that um, and I do enjoy it and it's crazy because now like a few friends know and uh, even before I even announced I haven't even full- officially announced that I was even doing this I was waiting to finish the certificate but well at least with my friends but. I do talk about death a lot on Facebook, on social media, whatever. And my friends, most of my friends are like, you know, if I die before you, you know, you have to do the eulogy at my funeral. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I got you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they're I know they're telling the truth. They're like, yeah, I really need you to do it. And I'm like, yeah, because me, I'm like, I think I, I said I saw a uh, there was an app like a year ago I used to have and it reminds you like twice a day that you're gonna die. Like it either sends you like a death quote or something, but it te- it's like the study that was done that if you're reminded of your death, you live a better life. Uh-huh. And so I'm always on Facebook like, don't forget, you're gonna die. <laughs> and so people are like, are you crazy? <laughs> and, and people are journaling more and leaving like records and all this stuff. And, uh, and it's great, it's great to see.
0: Yeah, it's amazing that you're able to, I don't know, Shepherd in the difficult conversations, but with a spirit of kind of like openness and honesty. Mm -hmm. So there's a positivity to it. Um, There's another film that you made about rape and sexual violence. Mm -hmm. Is your most recent documentary? Yeah. Would you mind speaking about that?
1: Yeah. Um, So like I said, excuse me. The uh, most most of the films came from the film before, and so when doing the mental health film, I learned that uh, a lot of the a lot of the folks I I spoke with uh, in the film their mental health journey or mental illness journey started with sexual assault and it was again one of those questions like why haven't we talked about that i don't even know how i what the beginning of that one of that film was like that that film because like the mental health film got dark um like i said it was 6 months past the the due date the the rape and sexual assault one I don't know how I what the beginning was really, but I do remember I was living in South Africa at the time and I was helping a friend at their bar. And uh, my neighbor, I lived in this neighborhood that was, I mean it was, you would compare it to like Soho in New York or something. And um, all the artists were there, the restaurants, the bars. But it was very, like a very well-defined border. It was like we had security all through the neighborhood. But literally, at the border, you could be across the street. And if anything happened across the street, security was like, that has nothing to do with us. I'm not going to get involved. And I was walking from the bar and the bar was two blocks outside of the border. I'm walking by and this woman is laying on the ground and she's just laying there. And she was still and I'm like, oh God, is she dead? And I stand there for like five minutes just just like staying. I didn't want to touch her. People are like selling fruit. People are walking by. No one's doing, Like I'm the only person that sees her. But it's like, clear as day and I'm like what's going on and this other woman stops and I tell her I was like I didn't want to touch her um, because I don't know if you know if I can or what and the woman kind of like moves a little bit and the the woman kind of moves in pain and then you see like blood like just pouring out of somewhere and then I look and there's like a blood trail and it goes all the way back by the bar where I where I just come from we call the police call the the ambulance and they come and again. 30, 40 people just walking by like nothing's happening. I go back to the bar and I was like, hey, it's a woman around the corner. She's been stabbed. And I don't know. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I think she was just a prostitute. So we didn't say nothing. And I'm like, what? <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. You should have called. Why didn't you call, the? you know, and it, it was just a thing. And I'm like, mm. huh, okay. And I remember thinking like, and I don't know if the film was a thought at that time, but I was like, hey, something has to be done about this. And I wrote an article about it, and and then things just started coming. I, I interviewed um, a couple of organizations in South Africa. I interviewed some people in South Africa as well, and then I said, okay, well, I got to go to London. Let me talk to some people there. I got to the States, interviewed some people here, uh, and it just, again, it kept picking up, and I was getting more and more survivors coming forward and saying, I would love to have a conversation with you and talk about it. People who had who had never opened up before. And, you know, I got <clears> to, <throat> I remember being, going to a presentation a workshop about the mental health film. And during the question and answer, someone's like, Oh, are you working on anything else? And I'm like, Oh, I'm working on a film about um, rape and sexual assault. Uh, you know, it's coming along, whatever. And I come down and I'm on my way to the restroom. And this woman's like, He actually gave me her card. And I'm like, Okay. And it was a friend's mom, um, guy I grew up with and she gives me her card. She's like, oh, you know, I'd love to give you some information about it, I work at so and so. I'm thinking, okay, as a professional. And I turned the card over and she wrote like a long note. It was like, I was assaulted when I was in college. Um, I would love to talk about it, I'd never talk about it. And I'm like, I've known you, I know you, you know? And it's, it was just heavy. And I was like, I have to tell the story. And I saw what it was doing for survivors to just come forward and talk to me. Yeah. And I'm like, we gotta get the stories out there. And that's what happened. We got the stories out. And again, just like the mental health film, people were um, writing. Men and women both came to talk in the film, which surprises a lot of people. They were like, you had guys speaking? I'm like, yeah, guys came forward. Um, And, you know, it's it's strange. I, I remember we had one guy in the film who didn't realize he was assaulted. He came to talk about how he supports the friends who've come to him to say that they've been assaulted, the women that have come to him. And while he's talking, his friend that he's with, who's a woman, she's like, "Well, tell him, tell Darnell about the time you were assaulted." And he's like, "I was never assaulted." And she's like, "Yeah, we were in the car, and you were telling me that story." And he's like, "That wasn't assault, you know? Yeah, I was, I was drunk and felt passed out, and and she just got on top." And he's and as he's telling the story, he's realizing that it's happened to him, and he's sitting there like, "Oh." So then through this film, so many people realize like. That's that's happened to me. I didn't think, but, oh, I guess, yes, I guess it is. And so we were able to have those conversations as well. And it was like what so many people thought was gray area or wasn't what it was. And it was just, it was just heavy. You know, I had a, we did a um, screening in Michigan and I had a um, father watching it and he's a cop and the mother is a rape and sexual assault trauma psychologist psychiatrist and um, he i can't i can't watch the film anymore so i usually just leave the room and sit in the hallway so he comes out and he's like yeah it's a good film i just got to come out and then he just breaks down and just tells the story about his 6-year-old daughter who was um, assaulted and he's like my wife works in this and i'm a police officer and it's happened to us and it happened in my home and i'm just like oh my gosh you know We need to, one, we have to end, like, how do we end it? And then, two, it's like, I'm glad we're having these conversations and people are being vulnerable and and sharing their stories. Uh, And so that's why it was important to get those stories out with that film. Is
0: it difficult for you to to carry the weight of, I mean, none of these films are easy subjects? Mm -hmm.
1: No, not, no, it's not difficult. I think it becomes... In the beginning, it was, because like I said, I wasn't, I was a mental health advocate, but I wasn't like in the streets, like giving out cards and referrals or anything. Um, And the same with sexual assault, like I've always um, been there for survivors and doing what I can as a friend and um, and whatever to whoever needed it. But so in the beginning, it was hard to, you know, you're trying to think of the right things to say. And it's like, I don't know what to do in this situation and on the spot, because it's like, but you made this, you know, and I didn't want to be the person that's like, but you made this film. What do you mean you don't know what to say? And I'm like, okay, so, okay, I need to talk, I need to talk to some people. And so I, you know, they have uh, mental health first aid programs where you go and learn how to hold space for people who are having, uh, who are in crisis or whatever. Um, same with rape and sexual assault, working with Title IX organizations at universities, um, and just organizations, gender justice organizations um, in South Africa as well. Uh, Because it's like, and and it changes place to place. Like when I screened it in South Africa, I remember when the film ended, one of the women said, you know, I watched it in the, when the American woman was talking, i never realized women in America got raped. And I'm like, yes, (laughs) I'm like, yeah. And I I was stuck because I'm like, wow. And you think, like, so many people think it's a very local issue. And, but also the way a lot of folks in South Africa saw rape was they would talk to me so matter of factly. It's like, oh, you know, or even just assault. It was like, oh, you know, I went to the store, I was walking down the street, um, guy tried to rape me or did rape me. And then I went home and it's like, what? And so then you're saying you got you have to figure out how to how to be in this space, and what to say. So yeah. So looping back to children's media now, <laughs> back to kids television. I
0: mean, I'm just <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of just in awe of how much you can hold. I'm curious do you do you have any um, specific self care techniques for mm-hmm. keeping your own vitality, your own balance? You're, you're mm-hmm. keeping kind of like a. A groundedness?
1: Yeah, I journal a lot. Um, journal is, journaling is amazing. Um I travel often. Um Travel is like a vice of mine. I used to do like, until COVID I was doing, I'd say a trip every month, like abroad somewhere. I meditate. And friends, I have a great circle of friends who keep me laughing all day. And I can really, we, we can all just talk, you know? It's like, they're like therapy, you know? It's like I watch the interview with Oprah a couple weeks, a couple days ago, and she's talking about Gail. And she was like, You know, the thousands of hours I, of therapy that I didn't need is because I can talk to her, you know, and I have those friends so that I can just be like, Hey, you know, this happened today. And they're like, Oh, okay. Because it does, it, it does like those, those, like making those films. I mean, I would just finish an interview and it'd be like, All right, I just need to take a break for like a, a month and do nothing. Um, and then you know it becomes easier and uh, but yeah self care and what about being at Esalen for this period of time with
0: the artist in residency program is is an element of it kind of like a you know utilizing the nature of this place which is awe inspiring mm-hmm. um, to
1: to come back to a kind of centeredness or a, a safety oh, absolutely this has been like I can't I you know I can't even express the <laughs> The gratitude I have for this place and um, the folks who put this this program together, like being here, has been not really even an an escape. It's like because I'm, the world still exists and everything that I'm dealing with in the world is still there and everything's, but it's just something about this place that definitely sent you know brings a lot of things into perspective and into focus and it's like huh, the room to breathe and. Like, I've meditated a lot here. I've been able to journal a lot here. It's like time moves a little bit slower here for some reason, somehow. Yeah, like being here has been... And and like the goal, I've been... Like that, I've been able to do all of those things, like handle my real-world responsibilities and achieve like all these goals I had set when, before I got here for being here and then having to create new goals because I've been able to just get them out, you know? And it's, I don't know what how that happened or what this place did to to do that. I'm not going to question it. I'm going to accept it and receive it. I don't know what what happened, like I'll go go get lunch and just sit out there and the other day I pulled out my journal and I was going to journal and then I just started outlining this novel that I've had in my head for like four years and I'm like, huh. Okay, I guess this wants to come out. And so now I'm working on that. And it's just like, <laughs> you know what? Not questioning. I'm just going to go ahead and receive it and write this book and, and make that happen. I feel yeah.
0: almost jealous of your creativity because just in the time that we've spoken, you've talked about you're creating for a podcast, creating for, mm. a, for a show. Yeah. You got several documentaries underneath on your belt. You yeah. have an obituary project. You have the new novel that's
1: coming <laughs> It you does sound excellent. like a lot. That's the, oh, my yeah. gosh. <laughs> what the, I don't know. Oh, that sounds like a lot. Maybe. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, if we're happy, everything else will fall into place. And that's how I feel. And I think that's what I create out of. I think it's let's start this conversation to to go toward healing, to go toward happiness. Let's create this children thing so we can show kids, you know, that they are on television, that we can create happier lives for them. And I think it all goes you know, it's all about happiness for me. At, at the in the end, no matter if, if it's the darkest thing or the lightest thing, it's all about happiness and um, either getting there or staying there. I think that's great.
0: Hey, Darnell Walker, can you give us some ways to find out about what you're doing uh, mm-hmm. on the internet? Ways for listeners to to follow you?
1: Yeah, it's I need to put it all in one place. Apparently, because that sounds like a lot. But uh, I'm I'm on. Um, Instagram at clever bastard spelled just like that clever bastard. Thought about changing that at one point, but I actually like it now. I'm I'm on LinkedIn. Darnell Lamont Walker. I'm Darnell Lamont Walker on on Google. You know, I could be found on all social media with that name, Darnell Lamont Walker. Yeah. What are the names of your films, and, and how can we watch them? Yeah. So the film first film is Seeking Asylum. Second film is uh, Outside the House. Third film is Set Yourself on Fire. Um, They're all available on Vimeo and YouTube uh, for free. Yes, the animated short film I'm working on now, it's called Our Song. And I'm hoping to have that out in the coming. Animation takes a while. Um, And so we're just in the beginning stages, but hopefully soon everyone will see that. Thanks for joining us on Voices of Esalen today. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. This show was produced in conjunction with Michelle McCrary, Terrence Gilby, and Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. Explore powerful, practical techniques to identify and heal unresolved traumas blocking the energy of the sacred feminine with Esalen Healing Arts Presents, Moon Lodge, Honoring the Sacred Feminine Sisterhood, June 18th to June 20th in Big Sur. Holistic doctor Julie Vaughn and master teacher of Buddhist Dharma, Lucia Haran will support participants in unlocking rituals to support their empowerment, inner balance, and well-being during and after the COVID-19 pandemic. This workshop is open to all those who identify as women. Learn more at esalen.org workshops.